Welcome, welcome. It's good to start the Advent season with you. It's the first Sunday of Advent, and uh, glad you're here. Uh, if you're visiting with us, especially honored to have you, and uh, if you've uh, not had the opportunity to, to meet any of our staff or leadership, just want you to know we'll be available um, out in the commons after the service. If you can hang around, love to get to, to meet you and just hear your name and how, how God brought you to Solid Rock, uh, but just super glad to have you with us this morning. Um, we're starting, uh, as I mentioned, we're starting the Advent season with an Advent series, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Um, just a quick reminder, though, that we have an all-member meeting this afternoon um, at 5 o'clock, and this is for um, members. This is also for anybody who's um, in the process and thinking about becoming a member. If you want to come uh, just kind of hear how we work through things, this would be a great opportunity. Um, just to let you know, we have um, got some things to discuss related to leadership. We've got a more than one transition coming up, and we want to talk through that, create some space to talk through that with you, the church family, and uh, so please be here. Uh, we are not doing child care because we don't want our volunteers to have to be in the other space while we're in here. We want everybody to be able to, to come, and so I would say this is important enough to, to get child care if you can, so you both can be here. Um, hope you can make it uh, five o'clock this afternoon. All right, so um, we, um, every year we we put together an Advent booklet to go along with our Advent series, and these are available at the welcome desk on your way out. Um, I think these are also available digitally um, on the app, so you can get them there as well. But what this is, is essentially just a, a book with four family devotions in it. Um, it's meant to be read out loud, just you and your family, uh, both some commentary and some scripture, but also some discussion questions, uh, just to generate conversation um, in your family. Um, there's even a recommended song to sing, so if, you're, uh, if you enjoy singing together, you can jump on YouTube and get a copy of a song you want to sing with, with the lyrics uh, and go for it. And if you're really feeling brave, do the karaoke version. Uh, but this is, uh, this is meant to just be a guide for you and your family during the Advent season. Um, you don't have to do it on Sundays, but it is connected to our sermon series. And so, for example, week one's devotion is going to be connected to what we're talking about today. So just so you're aware of that, Sunday night makes for a great time to sit down and give 15 minutes uh, to worship as a family. So the series this year is, uh, the title is Second Advent. So let's just back up for a minute. What does Advent mean? Advent essentially means the arrival. So we talk about Advent season, we're celebrating the arrival of Jesus. And the Advent season begins um, four Sundays before Christmas. And Christmas falls on a Sunday this year. And so our fourth Advent service will actually be Christmas Eve. Um, and so if you've already looked ahead on the calendar and you're like, wait, Christmas falls on Sunday. What are we going to do, Christmas Eve or Sunday? Um, first of all, we didn't feel like it was wise or healthy to ask our staff to, to, to work on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Uh, and so we said, well, which one would serve the family more? And our attendance on Christmas Eve tends to be like quadruple <laughs> what, it, what it is the Sunday following. And so we feel like we better serve you as a church family by doing Christmas Eve services. So um, just mark your calendar, Christmas Eve, we'll have one service together as a church family, and then on Sunday morning, um, if you have space as a family to do, uh, to do something intentional, we'll provide a resource for that as well. Um, but we won't hold services on Christmas morning, so Christmas Eve will be our services for that weekend. Um, so the series this year we're looking at is the second Advent, and essentially what we mean is, um, how does celebrating the first Advent, the first arrival of Christ, prepare us for the second advent, the second arrival. How, how can we look at how Jesus came to earth the first time in a way that compels our hearts and creates a longing for him to come back? And we're going to be looking at the distinctions between how Jesus came, 
born humbly into a manger to a family that essentially was in poverty uh, to walk as a servant among us. Um, how, how does that Jesus look when he returns? Will, this, will it be the same? Are we still looking for a baby in a manger or are we looking for something different? So we're going to work through this each week. And today, what we're looking at is one of the things that Jesus says about his second coming is that he will return as a judge. So we hear this word judge. Um, the biblical word here means to draw distinction or to separate. Okay, to draw distinction or separate. And some difficulties that we have with the idea of Jesus being a judge begins with we live in a culture um, that is very much against the idea of drawing distinction or separation. That everything has to be equitable. And now, while I would agree, if we draw distinction and separate in a way that shows partiality or advantage, that would truly be prejudice and would be wrong, to give advantage to one group over another. However, when Jesus comes to judge and to separate, we're going to look at the connection between his judgment and his love. And I think one of the mistakes that we make as a church is we usually only teach one of those at a time. We will spend time teaching on his love, hammering the point about Jesus loves you, or occasionally, if we get courageous enough, we'll teach about Jesus being a judge. But rarely do we ever teach those two things at the same time so that we can see the relationship between the two. And historically in the church, there's this, these invitations we give to people to come to Jesus, and one of them is this, this compelling invitation to, to come and to be drawn by his love, his grace and his goodness, and yet there is oftentimes another version that is being driven by, being pushed by the fear of what might happen if you don't come. And so today we're going to see how Jesus' judge is also a fulfillment of Jesus' love. And these two things are not interdependent of one another. Jesus says this in Matthew 25, verse 31, about his second coming. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And so automatically we hear that and we kind of feel attention, don't we? Ooh, that doesn't quite look like the Jesus in the manger who came to die for the sins of the world, to bring together all of his people into a kingdom. This sounds like a different Jesus. And it's almost like we have two different Jesuses here. And somehow we're hoping that the loving Jesus will convince the judge Jesus to let us into heaven in the end. And so we read a passage like this and for me, I take a step back and go, oh, this, this feels a little harsh. How can Jesus be loving and also be a, a judge who separates and divides and pulls people apart the way a shepherd separates sheep from the goats? So in Luke 13, we're going to begin. The very first verse is super simple, but it tells us a lot about who Jesus is. It begins here that he, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages 
teaching, and journeying towards Jerusalem. Sounds just like a simple reference, doesn't it? Just a description of what's going on. But I, but I love the wording here that, that Luke puts in, 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 as he writes this down. It's not just that Jesus was kind of bumping around from town to town, wandering around, but he was actually on a mission. He was teaching and he was journeying towards something. We'll come back to the teaching part of it, but this idea that, that Jesus wasn't just out kind of meandering about the hillside, wandering into villages, taking things as they come, but he, his life was actually aimed at something. His life was aimed at Jerusalem. It wasn't just by chance that he stumbled into town, right, on Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, uh, that, that eventually led him to be arrested and tortured and put to death. Like, that was his aim. So Jesus journeyed, listen to this, on purpose, and he journeyed with a purpose. And so we think about Jesus is love, the greatest expression of love is that one would lay down his life for another. And so even in this description of what Jesus is up to, he's on a mission to lay down his life as an expression of his love. As he journeyed, he was aimed at Jerusalem. And along the way, he was teaching. Now, this is primarily a Jewish context, and that'll help us understand this question that's about to come up and so as jesus was traveling he was teaching and something about what he was teaching was causing the jews to question things and kind of the the idea of being a jew was that you were one of god's chosen his elect and so as long as you were a faithful jew you were you were included in the kingdom and yeah there may be a few a remnant few who are heretics or super rebellious who wouldn't make it into heaven. But for the most part, if you were a Jew, you were in. And so something that Jesus was teaching was causing the Jews to take a step back and go, wait, 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 wait. Maybe that's not how it's going to be. How do I know if I'm going to be included? And so a question comes up as he's journeying towards Jerusalem and teaching. Verse 23 says, someone says to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? I don't think this is a random question. I think something that Jesus has been saying caused a Jew to begin to draw the conclusion that maybe this, this idea of God's kingdom isn't as widespread as we thought. Maybe it won't be that the many are saved and the few are left out, but it's beginning to sound like the few will be saved and many will be left out. And so this simple question comes up, Jesus, will those who are saved be few? You think about that. That's a pretty appropriate human question, isn't it? I'd like to know the answer to that, because if it's a few, there's a good chance I'm not going to make it. Like, if I'm going to do an honest look in the mirror, right, and I'm thinking about who's God going to let in, if it's just a few, I'm sunk. And, like, my only responses to that are, one, is I'm going to double down, and I'm going to white-knuckle my way through this thing, and I'm going to pursue hyper-morality, and I'm going to try to convince you and God that he should let me in. Oh, I'm going to be part of the few. And then hypermorality leads to moral failure which then leads to your only option then is the smoke screen and the facade 
I'm going I'm to fake it till I make it, right? But then the other response, if, if only a few are getting in, is like, well, then why even try? Like, I've looked in the mirror. I know where my heart is. I know that I get it wrong more than I get it right. So why even try? I think that's a fair reflection of what we see in the church today. We've got those who are still striving and trying to white-knuckle their way into heaven. Only a few are going to get in. I'm going to make sure I'm one of them. Like, I'm doing everything I can to convince Jesus when he returns that I'm a sheep, not a goat. And we have those, and this may be you today. It's like, man, why even try? That doesn't sound like a pleasant life. Work super, super hard to be something you can't be, hoping that God's going to let you in. Like, that sounds futile, and why, why even try? And maybe where you're at today, like, why even go to church? You're maybe sitting here going, like, I don't even know why I'm here. Why even try if it's actually this hard to get into, into heaven? So Jesus, he answers, he says to them, this is his answer. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Jesus was teaching in Matthew 7, and he says it this way, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now we begin to understand why that question was even asked. So how do we reconcile this? How do we reconcile this idea that Jesus will return as a judge, and when he does so, he will separate people like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He's loving and kind and patient, and yet... Only a few are going to get in. How do we reconcile this idea that a loving God also makes the way to heaven hard and narrow where a few will find it? I mean, shouldn't a loving God make the way to heaven easy and wide where anybody can find it? Well, Jesus continues, and he's going to use this kind of house and door illustration to help teach and explain what he's getting at here. And he says in verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door. So the idea he was saying to the people of his day and time, the door's open, but there's coming a time when the master will rise up and will shut the door. And you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. So, man, there's a day coming where the door's going to shut. The master of the house is going to rise up and shut the door, and you're going to be on the outside, and you're going to knock and say, won't you open this door to us? Won't you let us in? And then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from.
That's heavy. So Jesus is saying, there's a day where I will rise up like the master of the house. And that door that is currently open to you will actually be shut. And you will stand on the outside and knock and ask to be let in. And the answer from the other side of the door will be, I don't know you. If you're thinking about this, how do we reconcile this? That doesn't sound like the baby born in a manger. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we read this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So that's saying that every one of us is going to have to appear before the judgment seat and a decision is going to be made. Like that Bible verse out of context, it feels a little scary, doesn't it? I mean, well, maybe not for you, it does for me. It does. Like I, I hear that and I go, ooh, you mean I got to give an account to Jesus? Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, that's scary. That's daunting. And for many of us, that feels completely hopeless. I'm out. I mean, if we can just compare ourselves to one another, I can, I can probably one-up you. I'm pretty good at this. I've been, I've been doing this Christianity thing for a while. I'm a pastor of a church. I can find a way to one-up you. And so if I'm just comparing myself to you, yeah. If not, I'll trip you, push you down, and I'll just be next in line. So I get in, right? Like, but that's not what Jesus just said. He's saying to me, no, Jason, you don't get to compare yourself to other people. You need to compare, your, compare yourself to the Pharisees and your righteousness has to be greater than theirs. It has to exceed theirs. These were the religious leaders, like the best of the best. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you don't get into heaven. And so not only does this feel impossible and daunting, it feels incredibly unloving. Oof. Where's that showing up in a worship song on Sunday? Jason Martin is backstage writing it right now. And there's a, uh, a helpful place that I found this week as looking through the second coming of Christ, and I came across a, a prayer from the saints in Revelation. And it's really more of just a crying out. And it gives us a kind of a description of those who have, have died with their faith in Christ and something that they're longing for right now as they wait for his second coming. And in Revelation 6, verse 10, we read that they cried out with a loud voice. Listen to this. This is the prayer of the saints. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. The idea here is this, that 
among the people of earth, there are some who are God's people and some who are enemies. And the enemies of God not only have rebelled against him, they're acting out in violence towards his people. And those who have died and who are awaiting the second coming of Christ, they're actually begging for Jesus to return as a judge. And what they're, what they're asking for is actually very loving that Jesus would avenge, that Jesus would separate the people like a shepherd separates sheep from goats into his people versus his enemies. I think about this like in the context of my own home. I don't have to let everybody in my house. And if somebody presents themselves as harmful to me or my family, out of my love, I will separate and judge. Like, if you're a good parent, you're supposed to judge, right? You're not supposed to give access to just anyone, right, to have access to your children. So it's actually a loving thing, right, as a parent to step in and say, no, you don't get to bring harm into this household. You don't get to bring harm against my people. And this is what the saints are praying for. Oh, Jesus, how long before you step forward and shut the door and avenge the blood? You bring your enemies to an end, and you gather your people to yourself. And so we can begin to see a kindness and something right about a good, loving Father who steps forward to protect his children to push away those who are not his people, who are rebellious enemies, who seek to harm his people. We continue on in Luke 13. And Jesus says this. He's a good teacher. He's like, I'm sure this is going to bring up some questions for you. Then you will begin to say... We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. So what Jesus is saying is that at his return, when he sits on the throne as a judge, there will be some who he doesn't let in who will say, hey, didn't we do like a bunch of good stuff? Like We went to church. We, I, I taught Sunday school. I, I led a community group. Like, I gave money to build the building that Solid Rock Church met in. I did a ton of good stuff for you. Many of you will say, we ate and drank in your presence and taught in your street. You taught in our streets. We hung out in your neighborhood, Jesus. But he, the master of the house, will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. But wait a second. I played the game. I did all the religious things. And you're telling me it wasn't enough? If we go back to Matthew 7, he says it this way. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, the truth of the matter is this. Every person in this room is a worker of lawlessness, including me, including the elders of this church, the pastoral staff. We're all workers of lawlessness. But the question wasn't, did you prophesy in his name? Did you teach for him? Did you go do a bunch of really good things in his name? What's the question? Do you know him? Like, that's the only question being asked here. You did all these great things in my name, but who are you? I never knew you. And the sad reality is that we are all workers of lawlessness. The sad reality is that my righteousness doesn't exceed that of a Pharisee. The sad reality is that you're not blameless either. And what Jesus is saying is that the pathway into heaven is narrow and hard and few are going to find it. If you have never been to church before or just not a lot of church experience, you're here today, you're like trying to figure out what this is all about, I want to invite you to to really lean in now. I want to invite you to really just, just turn up the volume of your attention and pay attention to what God's word is about to say. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, there's a guy named Paul, and he's writing a letter to the church, and he's talking about this second coming, this judgment that's on its way. I want you to pay careful attention to the words that are written. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11, we read these words. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you listen to this so that he may establish you so that he may establish you, your hearts, blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. That's the good news of the gospel. The pathway is narrow. Few find it. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you don't get in. And here's the good news. At his returning... 
for all who are in Christ, he will establish you in blamelessness and holiness. He will do for you what you can't do for yourself. He will do for me what I can't do for myself. The pathway is narrow, and I'm here to tell you, I can't find it on my own. I can't strive enough to get, I've tried. Some of you are still white knuckling it. I'm just telling you, I've run that play and it doesn't work. You're going to get to the end and the question is not going to be asked, how hard did you work? The question is going to be asked is, do you know him? Our only hope is on that day when Jesus sits on his judgment seat is that he will establish us in blamelessness and holiness. When you come to the place in your life where you say, Jesus, I'm all in. I'm in. Here's what happens. He saves you and he draws you into a relationship with him where you will know him. And he gives to you a gift that you can't do for yourselves, and it's the gift of his righteousness. And that's what it means to be saved. This is the gospel. You can't establish yourself. You won't be able to find the narrow way. And you won't be able to do enough hard work to get into heaven. And some of you, that may be frustrating to hear, but that's the best news I could tell you. To give you permission to set down the striving and let Jesus do the establishing. That's the good news of the gospel. When we are saved, we enter into a relationship with Jesus himself where we get to know him. And to those who know him, he imparts his righteousness as a free gift. He establishes us in blamelessness and holiness. By our faith in Jesus, listen to this, our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. That's, that's big time. So the question isn't how good or how bad have you been? Save that one for Santa. Really, the question, the question is this, is do you know him? And I want you to listen to how this teaching ends. So good. Verse 29, he continues. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Like the question isn't, is God going to let you in by the skin of your teeth? What God is saying is, no, I have a place for you at my table. You just come barreling your way into heaven. Your righteousness is more than enough. It exceeds that of the Pharisees. Come, sit at my table and dine with me. People from the east and the west and the north and the south will gather in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are the last who will be first and some are the first who will be last this whole time i'm listening to jesus and visualizing him teaching with this crowd and it sounded like man not very many people are going to get in and like 
when I hear him say the least shall be first and the first will be last, I, I start thinking about the underdog. Because that's how I feel. Compare me to the Pharisees. Those guys have got a fighting chance. I don't have a fight. I'm the underdog here. And uh, just this past week, um, the school that my boys go to uh, made it to the state championship. And this is a, a new level of district play for them. And so coming into this game, they were the underdogs. They were actually predicted to lose by 22. And uh, so I was texting the coaches on, on Thursday before the game. And I was like, hey, man, I love it when the underdog makes the headlines. Let's do this. And so we went in and we fully expected this to be a horrific fight. We probably were going to lose. Everybody expected us to lose. And our boys took the field with big hearts and a ton of hard work and humility, and we won 68 to 30. I love cheering for the underdog, don't you? Jesus cheers for the underdog. What he's saying is, hey, listen, Jews, on your own, you don't have a chance in all the world of making it into heaven. It's narrow. Few are going to find it on their own. Come to me. Because I cheer for the underdog. In the kingdom of heaven, the least will be first. Those who have not will have. Those who can't will. The least shall be the first. And the first will be the last. Maybe you came to church today and you're just like, I'm the underdog here. When I look around the room and I look at the church, like if God's going to measure me based on how good I've been, I'm kind of sunk. I mean, I hope he's giving out mulligans, right? I hope there's like a loser's bracket. Maybe I could jump on that bracket and go toe-to-toe with some other underdogs like me and maybe fight my way in. And, and maybe you're here today, and, you're, and that's how you feel. You truly feel like that. If only a few are getting in, you're sunk. And today, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus will return as a judge, and the door right now is open to you. Will you come to Jesus today? Will you come to Jesus today? He's not trying to scare you into a relationship. He's telling you the truth about what will happen when he returns. And he's saying, I want you. I want you at my table. I want you in my kingdom. And I'm going to do the hard work required to get you there. All you have to do is believe. Trust in me. Will you come to Jesus today? With that in mind, I just want us all to think about a few things. When you imagine yourself standing before the judgment seat of Christ one day, what comes up for you? Fear? Shame? Excited? When you think about giving an account for your life, what things are you most excited to give an account for? Maybe there's some things that come to mind. You're like, man, I hope Jesus remembers that. I was having a good day. Uh, please, please, I hope he brings this one up because, man, I was, I was killing it that day. Maybe there's some things you're excited to give an account for. But what things come up for you that you're ashamed of? 
And here's the last question, and really the most important question today. Is have you come to the place in your life where you're willing to take an honest inventory on whether or not you will make it into heaven? There's one criteria, one standard by which you will be measured. Do you know him? Come to him today. As we get ready to wrap up, I'm going to pray for us and we're going to sing like we normally do. And if that's you, I'm going to encourage you to come grab one of our prayer partners. They'll be up here at the front. If you want to talk with somebody else, we'll have pastors and elders available as well. But listen, church, the good news is the door's open. Jesus is standing at the door with the door open, and he just cannot wait to see you coming and wrap his arms around you and say, welcome in. And say, that's what I'm going to pray for today. You would come to Christ. Let's pray together, church. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Father, our temptation is to make the way into heaven easy. So easy, God, that we could just fumble our way through life and coast right in. And for some of us, God, we've convinced ourselves that that's the gospel. But uh, the reality is that we don't get in without standing before the judgment seat. And Father, when we think about that day, uh, based on our own merits of what we've done, good or bad, Father, that's scary. Super scary, God. It almost just feels hopeless. There's no way you would let me in. But God, thank you that the good news of the gospel includes the story of your son coming to earth to be born as a baby in a manger to live a perfect life on my behalf and to die for my sins and rise again from the grave. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that when we put our faith and trust in you, you forgive our sins, which are many, and you give to us our, your righteousness, which exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. You render us holy and blameless. So, Lord Jesus, we come to you today. We pray this in your name.